over the years, there's been uh, much discussion about the connection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. At Regent College, where I attended seminary, there's a whole course dedicated to this discussion. But there is also some debate over whether this connection even actually exists. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings before he became a Christian, before he became friends with C.S. Lewis, or, or, yeah, before he became a Christian with C.S. Lewis. And he himself has denied that there is this allegorical connection. He's denied that it, The Lord of the Rings represents the story of Jesus. However, almost 20 years ago, Peter Jackson made The Lord of the Rings movies, and he clearly saw this connection. So, here comes another one of my spoiler alerts, um, and I have now warned you in the past, if you're going to come to Open Gate Church, you don't like spoilers, you need to go out right away and watch Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and probably all of the Marvel movies. <laughs> so the opening scene to the second movie, The Two Towers, finds Gandalf, the wizard, sacrificing his life to save his friends, his fellowship. And he falls into a deep abyss. And as he does, he assumes the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross. I noticed this connection immediately the first time I watched the movie. So what follows was super exciting. As Gandalf falls essentially into hell, he proceeds to beat the living heck out of a Balrog, this devil-like adversary. And I couldn't help but imagine Jesus, after his death on the cross, descending into the dead and beating the devil in a similar epic, victorious fashion. Later in the movie, Gandalf, again spoilers, is resurrected from the dead. I'm sorry, Tolkien, there's connections there. But when he appears again to his friends, the fellowship, it's with this stoic, epic greeting, this blinding light. And he says to them, I come to you now at the turn of the tides. Today, we're gathered to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an event far more epic than even Tolkien could compose. However, the literary grandeur of our account might come across as a little less than epic, you could say. As we heard in our reading today from the Gospel according to Matthew, when the first of Jesus' disciples encounter the risen Lord, it's a little less stoic, a little less epic than Gandalf's greeting. Jesus greets his disciples with greetings. So I had to look this up. I thought, okay, well, there's got to be more going on here. The Greek word that's translated as greetings is Cairo. All the Greek lexicons, all the parsing, all the commentaries that I looked at will tell us that it's just a normal everyday Greek greeting, like our hello or hi. Jesus uses this cheerful, nonchalant, how's it going, to greet these women with the most incredible, unbelievable sight their eyes had ever seen. And I couldn't help but imagining if this was happen that this was happening in Texas for some reason. And Jesus might have just been leaning up against the fence post, probably eating an apple with a knife. 
And then he tipped his steps to greet the women with a howdy. <laughs> Bet you weren't expecting to see me. <laughs> and I know that's silly. Uh, but as I said, I, I did the proper exegesis, and I can't find any other way to read Jesus' greeting to these women in the gospel according to Matthew. It's a cheerful, casual greeting for a joyous reunion with his friends. And the reason that the gospel account is perhaps less literarily impressive than Tolkien's epic tale in The Lord of the Rings is because it's not a story. At our Good Friday service, we observed in somber remembrance and reflection the same events we've recalled with the children this morning, the crucifixion, the death of our Lord Jesus. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27, beginning at verse 57, tells us that after Jesus had died, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And because Joseph was rich and therefore probably had some social status, some influence, Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Matthew also tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Matthew then informs us that after observing the Sabbath, the day of rest, at dawn the following day, on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went back to look at the tomb. Mark and Luke explain in their accounts that they brought spices to wrap the body in the proper way because Jesus had been buried in a rush, in a hurry, because the start of the Sabbath on Friday evening was about to happen. The other disciples had abandoned Jesus in his time of need, other than John, who was reported to have stood near the cross with Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And after this, all of Jesus' disciples went into hiding. They were afraid that those who had had Jesus killed would come after his followers next. But these women remained courageously faithful. They went to the tomb, and when they arrived, they were greeted by a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Again, somewhat casually, it seems. But his appearance was like lightning, his clothes as white as snow. Now, the Bible often reports the appearance of angels as producing fear. And I'm sure we would all get a bit of a shock if a man who looked like lightning suddenly appeared standing among us right now. So even though the guards who had been put in front of the tomb were probably these battle-hardened soldiers, they'd never seen anything like this angel. And they were so afraid that they shook and they became like dead men. They fainted with fear. Now having been taken out of the equation, 
the guards are ignored for the rest of the report because the angel's message was not for them. It was for the women. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The angel makes this incredible, unbelievable announcement. Jesus has risen. If we could just pause for a moment to try to contemplate the enormity of the significance behind these words. This is the culmination, the fulfillment of Jesus' life and teaching of all scripture, of all the law, all the prophets. This is the climax of God's big story of the gospel. If we're able to come anywhere close to grasping the enormity of these three words, then it's that much more striking that these three words are all we're given. There's no further explanation about how or why. The angel doesn't provide the moral of the story. On Friday afternoon, after our Good Friday service, I was reflecting on how we began our journey through the liturgical calendar in Advent, exploring the opening to the Gospel according to John, John's prologue. And I was reflecting on how we experienced through Advent that John's Gospel is so full of theology. The opening words are an explanation of the ontology, the metaphysical nature of the being of the triune God, from which John then abruptly moves to an exposition of the incarnational soteriology, how God became man, fully God, fully human, and why? To save us. And as we've reflected on this weekend, a third of John's gospel is dedicated just to the final discourse, Jesus' final teaching to his disciples, which is jam-packed with spiritual, theological, and metaphysical revelations and implications. So it really struck me on Good Friday as we journeyed through John's account of the crucifixion that there's no theological explanation given. Just a report of the events as they occurred. John only goes so far as to include the refrain, these things happened, that scripture might be fulfilled. And the same is true of all the gospel accounts, reports of Jesus' death and resurrection. As we said, as a whole, the gospel according to John gives us by far the most theological exposition and explanation The Gospel of Matthew, from which we heard today, is written primarily for a Jewish audience and spends a lot of time going to great pains to demonstrate how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And though Matthew does include more detail in his account of the resurrection than any of the other Gospels, when we come to the report of the announcement of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, it's with just three words. He has risen. Despite the enormity of the theological implications and significance of this, no explanation is given as to how or why. 
What we are given is a report of the events as they occurred. The report of what happened that Sunday morning. Easter isn't theology. Jesus' death and resurrection isn't theology. We're not here to talk about, to, to remember theology or spirituality or philosophy or religion. We're here to remember and celebrate what happened, the historical event that happened and that is reported as it happened. And we know that this happened because we read the reports of the events as they occurred, as they have been given by the eyewitnesses who were there. And I think that's worth remembering before we move on. Because these three words, this incredible, unbelievable announcement, is unbelievable. It's hard to believe, even perhaps for some of you listening today. Which is okay. Because it was hard to believe, even for those who had spent three years sitting at Jesus' feet, those who had witnessed his many miracles, including how he had famously raised Lazarus from the dead. It's difficult to grasp. And so, in his mercy, God sends the angels, the angel to direct the women who were perhaps having difficulty grasping, grasping all this, to see the evidence for themselves. The angel said to the women, Come and see the place where he lay. And this invitation is appropriately addressed to the same women who had watched Jesus being buried. As we read earlier from Matthew, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. They saw Jesus' body being put into the tomb. They saw it being sealed. And these women, these disciples of Jesus, go and look and see and discover that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. He has risen. The angel then instructs the women to go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to the disciples. Now it's not hard to imagine this mixture of fear and happiness that these women would have been feeling at this incredible, unbelievable news. But we do see they right away obeyed the angel and ran to tell the other disciples. The angel had told the women that they and the disciples were to go to Galilee and see Jesus there. However, suddenly, Jesus met them. Right there near the empty tomb, these faithful women met and saw the risen Lord. Greetings. He said. Jesus uses this cheerful, almost nonchalant hello or hi to greet these women with the most incredible, unbelievable sight they'd ever seen. And it was cheerful because it was joyous. It was a happy reunion. Jesus had just been through a lot. I'm sure he was feeling pretty good, pretty happy. This appearance and greeting is certainly quite the contrast to the appearance of the angel that 
caused those battle-hardened soldiers to shake and become like dead men. The women weren't quite as relaxed. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. He took hold of his feet, and that shows us immediately that this wasn't a vision or a hallucination, that Jesus wasn't a ghost. It shows that this was a physical resurrection. And they worshipped him. Now Jesus and the women knew full well that only God is to be worshipped. And so when we see Jesus accept their worship, we see that it is an acknowledgement that he is God. Despite Jesus' cheerful greeting, the women are taken aback. So then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. He reassured them before immediately handing them one of the most important tasks in the history of humanity. Jesus said, Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. By brothers, Jesus is referring to his disciples, the same ones who had only recently disowned and forsaken and abandoned him. Certainly his eleven disciples, but perhaps also a broader group of disciples who had been following him. And so it shouldn't be lost on us that in this moment we see God's grace and forgiveness at work. It also shouldn't be lost on us that the first thing Jesus tells these women is to go and share the good news that he is alive. Nor that these women are chosen as the first witnesses to this incredible, unbelievable historical event. That is significant in itself. In those days, women, sadly, didn't have the same rights and dignity as now. This meant that their witness was considered unreliable. It was counter to what outsiders would have valued or respected. It was considered worthless. This also means that their witness is definitely not what Matthew or ancient Christians or the later church would have chosen to invent, to make up. This is not the way to try to make people believe a story if they'd made it up. But this is what happened. It was women who discovered the empty tomb. This is how God chose for those events to unfold as Jesus continues to flip the upside-down world right side up again. He continues to go against the accepted cultural norms by revealing himself to women and telling them to be the first for this important task of taking, carrying, bearing his message, his good news, the gospel to the other disciples. These uncredible, unreliable, unworthy women also further prove what we have observed this morning in the gospel account of the resurrection. That rather than present a teaching of how or why Jesus was raised from the dead, rather than present a compelling story, convincing story, a literary masterpiece, Matthew's clear intention in this gospel account of the resurrection is simply to write what happened, just what actually happened. And what happened not only stirred and changed 
these women's hearts. It stirred and changed human history. Through redeeming the dignity of these women, through showing grace and forgiveness to those who had abandoned him, Jesus' work of salvation had begun. On Thursday, we looked at how on the night before he died, Jesus gave his disciples a mandate, a command, to do this in remembrance of me, to share the Lord's Supper, communion, in remembrance of his past work, but also in remembrance of the reality that we all share still today, that we are, not were, saved by Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus also said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus commanded all who follow him to love one another with the same sacrificial love, the same gift of self, giving of oneself for the sake of others, that Jesus so powerfully demonstrated on the cross when he died for us on our behalf. And after the resurrection, if we read on, we see that when Jesus did appear to the eleven disciples, he immediately got to work giving his disciples another mandate, one explicit way in which they were to follow their mandate to love others, by commissioning his disciples to go, to share, to preach the good news of his saving work, of his death and resurrection with others. And in our epistle reading today from Acts 10, we heard the report of how one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, the same Peter who had abandoned Jesus even after denied Jesus, even denied knowing Jesus, he got up and said to the crowd, Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through him. Peter declared that in accordance with prophecy, everyone who believes in Jesus can have forgiveness of their sins, the same forgiveness that Jesus showed his brother Peter, even after he denied him. Peter faithfully obeyed his commission and shared with the world that all can receive this forgiveness. This is the good news Jesus told his disciples to share. So while we may not be here to talk about theology or philosophy or spirituality or religion, while we are here to remember a historical event, and while the Bible reports the resurrection in a way that doesn't feel like it needs to get into how or why Jesus rose from the grave, we see that Jesus did commission his disciples to share the good news of what had happened, and what it means. As we reflected on on Good Friday, Jesus didn't die as a martyr for a cause. He was never in the wrong place at the wrong time. His death was not the result of a series of unfortunate events, nor was it an unavoidable tragedy. He was never at the mercy of anyone. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And he did it for a purpose, in accordance with God's purpose, God's will, God's plan. 
So that Jesus' resurrection is not about some new philosophy or spiritual experience. It's not even about theology. The announcement, He has risen, is the announcement not of a theory, but of a fact. That God's will, God's plan, God's purpose in history, in the history of the world that He created, was now being fulfilled. That God's kingdom had come, just as Jesus had been preaching about. That God was beginning to set the upside-down world right side up again. This was all for a purpose. It was all for his people. It was all for you. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord for you. And he laid it down only to take it up again. In today's account of the resurrection, we see Jesus' disciples, these uncredible, unbelievable women, receive the incredible, unbelievable good news. Believe the incredible, unbelievable good news. And go and share the incredible, unbelievable good news. The good news that the point of the cross was not just Jesus dying for us, but that he died and rose again, thereby defeating, beating the living heck out of sin and death for once and all, for us. As the Gospel according to John explains, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the raising of your Son, you have broken the chains of death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life. Fill us with faith and hope because a new day has dawned and the way to life stands open. We pray that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may by your life-giving Spirit be delivered from sin and raised from death with Jesus. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.